Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Well, good morning, and it's hard to believe it's the last day of May, and we're five months through the year, and it's a beautiful, beautiful morning to share the word with the Lord. I, I've been excited about sharing in Philippians 2, and one of the beautiful things about being a pastor is you just, when your time and your week is coming, you get to spend extra time in the word, you get to spend extra time thinking about the Lord even more than normal. And, and it hit me that those times and those things where we discover a part of scripture, where it, it becomes real to us or it speaks to us, are things that are really eternal. This shirt is one day gonna fade out and get used to wash the car and turn into a rag or end up in a little thrift store one day and this phone will hopefully get recycled somewhere along the way. But but what we gain when we touch the word of God and when it touches us, it's something special. And there's something special about opening the word together. This is the word of God. And there's this triangle that happens, the Holy Spirit that is part of us, our spirit, and the word of God, and it's as if the Lord uses those three to touch us. It's, it's more art than it is science, but we often say we read the word, but there are moments when the word starts to read us, and I feel like I had some of that happen this week, and I hope you can join in and share that with me, but I love how the word becomes part of us, and when that happens, that's something that will last forever. This shirt's not gonna last forever. But when the word starts reading you and the word starts reading me, it's a part of us. And so when we open the Bible, it's often good to know what's the context, who's the author. And Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. And so if you're new to the Bible or you're new to the church, he was an interesting character. He was... uh, actually one who was so zealous against the Christians that he was a part around that time when Stephen was murdered. And so he was accounted for one who was against those in the faith. He had this radical conversion. He's, he's on a road and he gets knocked off and God encounters him and then he becomes one of the great apostles really to all of the Gentile world and one of the brilliant intellects who wrote so much of the New Testament. But he started out as a really uh, famous in the Jewish world. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Like he was a Kennedy. He, had, he touched all the right dots and crossed all the right T's. And so when he turned into someone who was for our kingdom, He was a pretty powerful person. He wasn't a disciple. He wasn't there three years with Jesus. In many ways, he was an outsider and he was looked that way. You know, I've talked about how he was beaten five times with 39 lashes 
almost to the point of death. He was three times, he was capsized and shipwrecked. And so his life was crazy. And you can imagine in this dark dungeon, this prison, 2,000 years ago, the prisons are bad enough probably today, but can you imagine the disease, the darkness that he was in? And yet when you read Philippians, something comes through. His positivity, his leadership, the essence of that he had something left over to give. And that's true leadership when really leadership is you've, you're self-sustaining and there's some overflow to give to someone else. And all of us have felt those times when we have nothing left to give. We've also felt those times when we've got something to give. But Paul, you can feel it coming out of the pages of the Bible, his passion. And so turn with me if you would. I'm, I'm gonna look online digitally at Philippians 2. I've got a I've got a Bible here that's analog and it's Philippians 2 and the Passion Translation. So New American Standard and the Passion. And so verse one, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and my brother-in-law got his master's and did his thesis on this chapter. And he was telling me that in the Greek, the language there, there's an implied and there is. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, is the way it really reads in the original language. If there's any consolation of love, and there is. And if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and there is. If any of these things are going on, Apostle Paul, from a place of authority, as a grandfather of the church, as an apostle to the Gentiles, as one who is suffering to bring life and bring the word to the church. He's saying, if, if any of these things exist, and they do, would you make my joy complete? Would you make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one person, purpose? He's basically saying, if any of these, these exist, would you make my joy complete by living in unity? And in the Passion Translation, the same couple of verses, he says, look how much encouragement you found in your relationship with the anointed one. You're filled to overflowing with his comforting love. We have experienced a deepening friendship with the Holy Spirit and have felt his tender affection and mercy. And as I was reading this, the word started to read me. As I was reading this, I was feeling, boy, this is someone who's talking about an intimate, affectionate relationship with us and the Lord. And he's, he's reminding those readers, as they, that letter got sent to the Philippians and they would all gather in communion, in community together, and they would hear their apostles speaking to them. And he's looking them in the eye through the pages and saying, look at how much encouragement you found in your relationship with the anointed one. And as I was reading this, I was reminded, I don't wanna sing a song with less passion 
than the author of the song wrote. And I caught myself feeling, am I feeling this crazy encouragement with my relationship with the anointed one? And for all of us, it can ebb and flow and be up and down, but you're filled to overflowing with this comfortable love. You've experiencing the deepening friendship with the Holy Spirit. And I just felt a, a just a, an ounce of conviction, like, oh, I'm not necessarily feeling that right now at the level the Apostle Paul is sharing it. And so the words started to read me in that way. But he's asking, he's appealing from a place of authority based on this loving relationship. And so as we go back and we just rest in his presence and say, Lord, I want to remember that day you saved me. I remember how outside I felt, how lonely I felt. I want to remember with deep affection my relationship with you. Those days when you saved me, my career was in trouble and you rescued me. And those days where we've seen words that no, only you could know that were given to us or the prophetic or seen friends or loved ones saved. And he's reminding us. And then he's calling us. In verse two in the Passion, it says, so I'm asking you, my friends, that you be joined together in perfect unity. And we're in a day where unity matters. We're in a day where we really feel divided in so many ways. There's identity politics where people are trying to put us in silos. There's religious places where there's not unity. And, and so we're looking for where can unity come from and how do we get it? And Paul here is saying, I'm asking you, my friends, that you be joined together in perfect unity with one heart one passion, and united in love. Walk together with one harmonious purpose and you will fill my heart with unbounded joy. So we'll come back to the subject of unity, but I wanna go on to the next verse three. Be free from pride-filled opinions, for they will only harm your cherished unity. And uh, we need to, we need to hold on to our convictions tightly, but we need to cradle our strong opinions softly. And I was thinking, how, how do you do that? Because we don't wanna be weak and have no opinions, but we can hold them softly. I, I know when you're in a meeting with people and it can be a business meeting, it can be a church meeting and you're discussing ideas, how do you, how do you hold softly your opinions. You can throw it out and you can do it in such a way that it's okay for someone to overrule it or have a better idea. You can give an idea, but be willing to have your mind changed. You can let somebody else win. You can, you can be uh, in charge of the meeting, but defer. And uh, you, show, you show these things in different, different ways of not having pride-filled opinions. I'll skip over to verse five and consider the example that Jesus, the anointed one, has set before us. 
Let his mindset become your motivation. It's a little more famous verse. Chapter two, verse five is a famous verse in, in our faith. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. I think the New King James says, let this mind be in you. Let the Christ mind, let your mind be transformed by him. And my brother-in-law said, try it for 24 hours. Get out a, get a, out a moleskin, get out a pad of paper, get out your notes on your phone and try to have the mind of Christ in you for a day. It's kind of a lost art. We don't hear it preached about or written about or talked about a lot. And ironically, I said, okay, I'll, I'm gonna try this. And I was driving with Lindy and I was kind of, she was driving, so she let me kind of work on my message. We had a little long drive ahead of us yesterday. And, and I had the Bible in my lap looking at this scripture, be free from pride-filled opinions. And um, she did something driving that I was sort of a backseat driver and we got into a little husband-wife uh, interaction about my backseat driving. And I just had to laugh because it's the most petty of pride-filled opinions and I hadn't made it through the first 30 minutes of my quest to have let this mind be in you. So try it. Try it for a day. Try it and see um, if you don't do better than your pastor did. And so the next verse say, don't allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts. Self-promotion hiding in our hearts. I almost laughed when I read this, like, is he's, he's saying like, I, we obviously know self-promotion's bad, so don't, but don't let it be this little thing hiding in your hearts. And I think, my goodness, we live in an age where the social media is nothing, it's, it's everything about self-promotion. We don't have to hide it in our hearts. It's okay to throw it out on the, in front of us. And then in abandon every display of selfishness says, but in authentic humility, put others first and view others more important than yourselves. Abandon every display of selfishness. And in the New American Standard, it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interest of others. We're such an identity culture and I feel, feel like the Holy Spirit has, has shined his light on our identity, who we are in Christ, and that we're sons of the King and he's made us whole and, and we're called to be glorified one day. But at the same time, in tension with that, we can be humbly allowing others to be more important than ourselves. It's, how do we do that? How do you, do you let someone else win? Do you let someone else go first? Do you let someone's opinion go before you? Do you take the weaker seat? Do you take the less prestigious place? 
Some of you are going to work tomorrow and, and it, in the business world, in the world of commerce, how do you humbly pit others' people's self-interest before your own? You may be a lawyer and there's two solutions, but one takes much more, uh, is much more profitable for you. How do you always do what's right in your client's best interest? If you're proposing a, a job for someone, how do you charge their fair and right price? And, and I've dealt with this in the business world. I, my world, I get paid by fees and commissions. And so there's, there's kind of a, almost an unspoken sentiment that if you work on commission, you'll always do what's in your own best self-interest. So as a Christian in the marketplace, how do you put someone else first? And I would, I would have, I would basically have, sometimes I'd be sitting in my car ready to go into a meeting and have to do a divine reset, have to do a self-talk. And it often went like this. Uh, there's, and especially in the early years, a lot of rejection in our business, more no's than yeses. And I'd have to remind myself, you know, it's their lucky day when they get to meet with me because I'm gonna come with great competence. I'm gonna bring the finest product in the industry to their disposal and I'm gonna treat their interest above my own. I'm gonna do handle my finances in such a way that I don't need them as a client. I don't need this sale. And I'd have this self-talk like it's their lucky day. If they choose to engage me or do what I'm proposing, they're gonna win a lot. I'm gonna win a lot, little. They win a lot, I win a little. If they say no and they brush it off, they lose a lot and I lose a little. And I would, I would just do this divine reset that it's their day. It's about them. I'm gonna treat them like they were my brother. I would, I'm gonna treat them like they were one of my own kids. They're gonna get great service, great product, great price, and it's their lucky day. So we reset to put other people's first, even in industries where they say that doesn't happen. It can happen for us as believers. And God sees that from heaven and I believe he blesses it and shows, hey, that's my, that's my daughter, that's my son. And they're putting someone else's interest above their own. And Paul is making this appeal. He's saying, I'm asking you in verse two, my friends, that you be joined together in perfect unity. And Jesus didn't get a pass on this. So in Matthew 10, when he starts naming the apostles, the disciples. He names them by name there in Matthew 10. But two of the disciples, he gives a subheading, a title. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. What's a zealot? The zealots were people that were just anti the Roman rule. They were, and they were aggressive about it. They were almost terroristic in their their desire as Jews to not be ruled by another people group. And Matthew, as a tax collector, 
uh, was the antithesis of what a zealot would hate. He, he basically had betrayed his people to go work for the Romans and collect taxes from the Jews. So he was, he was a traitor in a way. And then they were allowed really to collect the money that the, Jew, that the Romans needed and they would take a surcharge or, or, or take some off the top for themselves. And so they're often not honest. They're often rich. They're often traitors. And so the, Jesus added to his team and mentioned those two subtitles to let us know he's not off the hook with an easy job of bringing unity to a group of people that he's leading, the zealot who would be totally opposed to the tax collector. And so we're looking for a day of unity. And I think the church is the greatest place. We've had a another, such an interesting week in our nation where in Minneapolis, uh, just a horrific, uh, what appeared to be a really horrific abuse by the police and it could be racially motivated and it, it's, it's a white cop and a, again, a black man that was killed and it, it turned into, from protests and even into places of riot. And so this is the second instant incident in what feels like this month. And so there's a cry out there for, for unity. And how do we do it in our nation? And I, I believe our church and the church is the place where the solution is. I believe it is the opportunity for unity. And we have an unusual situation Think about how blessed we are here at Bethel, Atlanta, that our church looks a lot like our city. It's diverse, it's diverse in age, it's diverse in race, it's diverse in economics, it's diverse in geography where people come from. It, there's tons of diversity, you know, and we're called on to bring together the tax collectors and the zealots, the conservatives and the liberals the red states and the blue states, the masks and the no masks, the haves and the have-nots, the men and the women, the joyful and the mournful, the hopeful and the heartbreaking. How do you bring together the joyful and the heartbroken together? And we've got a church that looks like our city and the answer I don't believe it's the political spirit. I don't believe it's, we've thrown a lot of money at certain problems. I don't know that that solves it, although it may be good. We write laws that are good, but doesn't solve the problem. But Jesus talks a lot about unity. The unity chapter in the Bible is John 17. And and I would ask you as a homework assignment to tonight, read that chapter this week, open it up, let it, let it sink in, let it drip like a coffee drip. Not the digital age, but the analog drip. And, and see if the Lord doesn't speak to you. This week, as I read it a couple of times, I felt like there was an invitation 
by Jesus to invite you and me into unity like he had with the Father. And there are hints that the key to evangelism, the key to winning the world, the key to winning the lost is when they see our unity. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I spoke about a few weeks ago, there he talked about unity again, the last words of Jesus around the subject of unity. And I've had a couple of letters from from people I really care about in our church. And um, they're people that so, uh, one in particular, I just love her to death. She knows I love her. And uh, she is a beautiful black member of our church. And she, she was just saying, Steve, we need to do more. And I agree. I've got another letter this week from someone who, who's not on the outside throwing grenades in, but one of us who serves and loves and says, let's do more. And I think we have to. We, um, I think one of the places we will do better, uh, I, think, I think white folks are scared to say the wrong thing and scared to be do something wrong and be labeled a racist. And, the, and I think we've just got to get through that and go for it and know that there'll be grace if someone ever doesn't do the right statement or says something that's not, that's off-putting. In our black community, I, I think they're, they're holding back because they're not sure how much they can say or ask. They don't want to be looked at as complaining or, um, or not loving what's happening here. And so I just want to declare a moratorium on let's talk and let's, let's have grace for each other. Uh, we've got a beautiful community that loves each other. And I think people just want to lean in and talk about what's going on and not, not have some, something go unsaid or an elephant in the room. And, and so we're ready for that. We've been more than ready for that. I've, I've been hearing some wonderful things happen amongst the worship team lately in this area. And, and so if you would jump into John 17 and see if the Lord doesn't speak to you about, about unity. Uh, I'd love to hear some of the books you're reading in this season, but one I, I read this week, The Analog Church by Jay Kim. I, I would recommend it so highly. He talks about digital church, which is what we're doing today. It's information. It's, I'm so glad we have the opportunity. Our normal church Sundays that we, we're all longing for, that's more like analog church. Uh, digital music, you know, that's Pandora coming over through my phone. Analog is the old days, a vinyl record, but they're making their comeback. Polaroids are making their comeback. So a digital camera or Polaroids is an analog technology. But this book is, touches on that. He's, and he says in here, digitization is the peak of convenience, but vinyl is the peak of experience. 
Tozer said, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Scott McKnight says, the church is God's grand experiment in which difference get connected. Unlikes form a fellowship and formerly segregated are integrated to be one. There are plenty of affinity groups around us, but only the church can be a place where even our affinities are set aside to gather around the profoundly good news that God loves us, is with us, and will make all things right someday. And also it says, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is alive between us. What our opportunity is, is as we gaze upon the Lord and glance at these things, as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and allow these things to, to come up, as we just become lovers, passionate lovers of Christ, what happens is any differences fade between us and our backgrounds fade because the author and finish of our, our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have this common brotherhood that we're all sinners saved by grace and he's calling us into this beautiful family and this beautiful kingdom and when we capture his heart on that and that spirit of God comes in us there's no room for prejudice we've got the answer that the world's looking for for unity we can do this thing and I want to close with um, one of my favorite Books, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers, on March 18th, he wrote that, that is the mind of the Spirit in perfect agreement with the life of the Son of God in me? And he says, and when I do, Jesus, excuse me, am I allowing the mind of Christ to be formed in me? That's Philippians 2.5. Christ never spoke of his right to himself, but always maintained an inner vigilance to submit his spirit continually to his father. I also have the responsibility to keep my spirit in agreement with his spirit. And when I do, Jesus gradually lifts me up to the level where he lived. There's an invitation there. Isn't that beautiful? When I get in the zone, when I get in the spirit, when I recognize the omnipresent God, the God within us, omnipresent, God everywhere. Well, if he's everywhere, can I recognize him as here right now? And as I live in that place, he slowly turns Christ in us, as he said here. And when I do, Jesus gradually lifts me up to where he lives. Lindy had a dream recently that's so beautiful and she saw Christ in three different 
behind three different doors. And the first door was the Antichrist. The second door was Jesus. What would Jesus do? And that was great. What would he do? But the third one, she actually melded into him and became one with him in unity as John 17 is talking about. He's in me and I'm in him. Jesus is in the Father and we're in him. And in that place, his life starts to be formed in us and we become one. We become one like brothers and sisters in Christ. We became one in a way that the world looks in and longs to have what we have. We have a wonderful opportunity to do this. Would you pray with me? Lord, let us be those people that have the Spirit of God so in them and the love of Christ so in them that they emanate Him. And so, Father, let us be unified. Let us answer the call of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. Will you be unified? Let us answer the call of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Would they be unified? And Lord, let us be ones that lead the way. We pray in Christ's name, amen and amen. So if you've never given your life to the Lord, this is a fabulous opportunity to do that. And you just give your heart. And however you say it, Lord, I give you my heart. I ask you to forgive my sins. And he takes and gives us new eyes and a new mind. And you join a family that's on a journey that says, let this mind of Christ be in you. So we ask you to join us, call us. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.